If your Bibles were turned to um, Philippians 1, that's good. Stay there, because that's where we're going we're gonna to get our text from today. It'll be Philippians 1, verses, verse 27. I just want to start um, with an opening comment in that last week, Last week, our conference last week, for me personally, was very exciting. And I know it was for many of you. You know, the concept that we originally started with became a full-blown reality on Friday night, February 9th. Sister Rebecca, when I saw her walking in, uh, she walked up to me and she said, you know this is a vision that God put on your heart. And I said, well, it's a reality that God has delivered. What God has delivered. You know, the conference itself was an event um, and a testament to the Lord's power to deliver. To the Lord's power to bring something from nothing and bring it out to fruition. And I think it's pretty amazing that we had there people, we had people there from 10 states that were represented, right? People from 10 states all over the central Florida area, which is something that we wanted to be able to do. Different corners of the city, different corners of the state, they all came together. And I think it demonstrated, I think it really demonstrated what we can achieve when by faith, we go before the Lord and we believe the Lord for something, right? I want to emphasize, none of us ever had any experience doing this. And it was just a thing we decided, okay, we're going to do it. Uh, we never bothered to figure out how. Everything else was, we were able to wing it. And I want to share something that many of you don't know. But there were a lot of deterrents to this. A lot of deterrents. A lot of things that went wrong. And probably the most significant one was when we thought we had a venue and everything was moving really positively and then new management came in and from being positive, everything went super negative to the point that we finally had to call and say, hey, cancel us, we're not going to come here anymore. So we had a lot of opposition. It, did, it also, it, about a month before maybe about, yeah, about a month before, around Christmas time, thereabouts, all of a sudden there was things going wrong with so many of us in this church. Physical illness and, and uh, different circumstances occurring at work, different trials, different tribulations. And I would say to my wife, Barbara, I'd talk to somebody, I'd say, here, here goes another one, here goes another one. Oh, these people are going through this, these people are going through that. I mean, there were testings and trials that were going on. And yet, we remained faithful. We didn't waver. We didn't succumb. We remained faithful. Why? Because our hope was not in ourselves. Nor was it in our abilities. Our hope constantly, and our faith constantly, was in Christ. So if God called us to do this thing, then we're going to be faithful. I remember on one prayer meeting, one night, Sister Kathy made this statement as she was praying, and it hit me like a two-by-four. She said, Lord, 
you have given us the privilege to do this for you. And I said to myself, how right is that? God gave us the privilege. He gave us the opportunity to do this so that he would be glorified. And as I read to you right before the prayer, and I read to you the comments of Alex McFarlane, uh, Dr. Harold Vaughn was, was very, very similar in his comments to me as well. The glory of God is what we pursued. And the glory of God was on display. For many to be impacted by the conference, for lives to be changed, for people to come forward and say, I want to follow Christ now, and I want to follow Christ in baptism, that the Spirit of God has spoken. And as I said to you earlier today, I believe that what was planted on that conference is yet to bear full manifest fruit for the kingdom of God. And so we see, notice what is possible when believers come together and in faith put their mind. And to have esteemed ministry leaders validate that. They validate that. Well, that just blessed my heart. So today's message, I've entitled, A Call to Action. A Call to Action. I was thinking about it. I, I was thinking about it last week. I wish I would have preached last Sunday. Because it would have been fresh, Right? But God had other plans, praise God. But now I thought, well, before we move on, and we're probably going to be moving into a verse-by-verse study of Ephesians starting next week. But before we move on, there had to be a call to action. What are the takeaways from the conference? What's the impact? We didn't just do this and then, you know, the date's over and we move on. There has to be takeaways. And that's what I want to share with you today. What is our call to action? If you have your little books, if you have your bulletin, I'm going to encourage you to take notes, and I'm going to encourage you to write down today our call to action. What is our call to action? Any preaching, any teaching, by any preacher or teacher of the Word of God that is worth their salt, is designed to provoke action. It's designed to generate a response. What is the response that we're going to give the Lord today? So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to focus on one verse today. One verse. And that's verse 27. Now before we get into the verse, I want to give you a little bit of a background to Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Right? Paul founded the church at Philippi. He founded the church at Philippi. And it was the first church that he established in Europe. We see this in in Acts 16. Philippi is named after King Philip. After King Philip. King Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. So King Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. Now, this city had both a Roman culture and a Greek culture. It was combined, right? Alexander the Great was a Greek. He went out and conquered the world, right? And so the Greek, and and when, when Alexander the Great went out, he went 
to bring the Greco-Grecian influence across the world. So Philippi was originally Greek. Later on, it was conquered by the Romans. And it became a Roman colony. And as a Roman colony, the citizens of Philippi were considered Roman citizens. That's what they were considered. So as Roman citizens, they had all the rights endowed to them by the Roman government. Now you have to understand something. You have a Greek influence. You have a Roman influence. What, it, what do they have in common? What they had in common were they all worship a pantheon of pagan gods. Right? The Romans took some of the Greek gods and they converted them to Romans. Right? But Philippi was a city that had temples dedicated to this assortment of pagan gods. So if you're a believer in that city, right? And you got to remember, this is about 61 A.D. Christ is crucified 30 A.D. This is 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? you got to remember that Christianity was thought of as a new form of Jewish sect. So as you're coming in here, what's one thing about Judaism and one thing about Christianity? Is we are monotheists. What does that mean? We believe in one God. One God. One God living among the people who believe in a multitude of gods and worship a multitude of gods. Right there, it is a challenge to be a believer in Christ. Now the church at Philippi loved the Apostle Paul. The church at Philippi had sent financial support to the Apostle Paul on multiple occasions. Paul, as he is writing this epistle, is in a Roman prison. He is among the Praetorian Guard. He mentions it right early on in, in chapter 1. He's among the Praetorian Guard. What did that mean? Paul was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. Chained to a Roman soldier. Now, during this time, he had certain liberties. It was a house arrest type of situation, but he was chained to a Roman soldier. Do you imagine those Roman soldiers? You imagine how much they heard the gospel? Chained up for 24 hours to the Apostle Paul. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. I could see the Roman soldier go, shut up already, will you shut up? As a matter of fact, we know through Paul's writing that some of the Praetorian Guard get saved. How did that happen? Chained up to Paul for 24 hours. Chained up to Paul. Man, would people around us get saved if they were chained up to us for 24 hours? Praise the Lord. So Paul is writing this in a Roman prison, and he delivers the letter to Epaphroditus, who brings the letter back to the church at Philippi. Now, just like all of Paul's epistles, if you look at all of the epistles, they usually begin with doctrine. And Philippi is true to that. First three chapters are doctrinal in content. Right? The remaining three chapters 
our application of that doctrine, along with personal greetings. Right? So we're going to focus specifically on verse 27. And verse 27 reads to us this. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now there are two, two very important points. There are two considerable points that I want to focus on within this text. Okay, The first one is conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of, of the gospel. Paul is speaking about Christian conduct. How does the believer live? And he uses a beautiful word. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And that word worthy means having actual worth that matches the value. So having worth that matches the value. Now, we know from the text, he tells us, live in a manner, he says here, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the value. Right? That's the value that he's speaking to. There is a value according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a value. That value was contained in Christ being crucified Christ taking upon Himself the penalty of sin. Christ dying in the place for all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Christ being buried. Christ being raised again. It comes with all of the justification, the sanctification, the glorification, and above all things, the regeneration of the believer. What do I mean by that? If any man is in Christ... He is a new creation. All of the old things have passed away and everything has become new. What does that mean? That means that if anybody is born again, they are no longer the same person they were before they were saved that they are after they are saved. That you are regenerated. And by the way, I want to share something about that. And I, I think this is an important point to note. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification, God setting us apart unto Himself, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. But it's a cooperative work. What do I mean that it's a cooperative work? The Spirit will convict the believer of sin. The Spirit will convict the believer of areas of their life that are wrong, that are outside the glory of God. The Spirit will convict. Upon that conviction, the believer takes an action. That action is to submit. Say, yes, Spirit. You are right. Yes, Spirit. That's not the behavior you have ordained. Yes, Spirit. I will obey the command of the Lord and conform Himself. As He conforms Himself, the Spirit continues to to shape and fashion the individual in the image of Jesus Christ. Can I add something? 
To be saved is not merely an intellectual decision. To be saved is not believing merely on a set of facts about Christ and the gospel. To be saved is to die to oneself. We do this in baptism. Every time we baptize a person, what do we do? We take that person and we, we put them before the people. They give their testimony of faith and then we challenge them. Is this your testimony of faith before these witnesses? That you have died to self, that you have repented of your sins, that you have turned from your sins and that you have turned to Christ of which they usually affirm. And then in that moment, we say, buried with him in baptism. And they go under the water, raised in newness of life. Newness of life. Not reformed life. Not I'm going to try the best I can life. We are raised in newness of life. Sin, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, sin is no longer master over us. As he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, all the old things, all the old things have passed away. What is that? All my old sin, all my old carousing, all my old cursing, all my old living in a, in, in, in a, in a degenerative life, it's all passed away. And what lies before me? Everything has become new. You see, the gospel has value. And here in Philippians 1.27, the Apostle Paul tells the church at Philippi, hey, you're surrounded by a godless culture. You're surrounded by a godless religion. You're surrounded by your enemies. And you're surrounded by your, your opponents. But don't you live like them. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Last week we spoke about stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in resisting the evil day. Stand firm in the fear of God. We, we, we preached this. We were moved. The, the speaker spoke and we were moved. But there's a call to action. And we have to do like what Paul commanded the church at Philippi. We now need to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Worthy of Christ. When we live in this perpetual disobedience, when we live a lifestyle that says, well, I'm going to live it. When we have a thing that we say, well, I don't care if, you know, 15 years ago I signed the card, I became a Christian, or I raised my hand, or I did anything. But our lives testify more to the world than they testify to Christ. We are not living a life that is worthy of the gospel. And the question and the challenge we got to ask ourselves, does my life reflect the value of the gospel and the value of Jesus Christ? That's the first call to action. How do I live my life? How do I conduct myself? How is my speech? How are my actions? Am I bitter? Am I angry? Am I filled with rage? 
Was the first thing set me off into a blind fury? Do I have love? Do I love my brothers and sisters in the faith? Will I extend myself? You know, one of the things that made me very, very happy about the conference, very happy, is how everyone came to serve. Nobody said, how come I'm doing this? Giselle never came to me. Why am I doing the book table? Right, Giselle? Nobody said, how come I'm an usher? We basically came to serve, to reflect the character of Christ. And you know it was observed. I made it a point as I went around to talk to just about everybody who attended that conference. I don't think there's anybody at, at minimum I could be wrong, but I don't think there was anybody who attended that I did not at least go over and say, hello, I'm happy you're here. It it, it might be true. I'm, I'm not being emphatic with this, right? But everything seems to be a blur. But do you know what? You know how many people said, my goodness, the people are so kind here. The hotel management, on Saturday, on Sunday morning, had a meeting. In that meeting was the owner of the hotel, the general manager, the gentleman Omar that we deal with, and a few other different people. And I caught Omar coming out right before we had service. I said, everything okay? He said, oh my goodness. They're talking about you. That whole meeting was talking about you and your church. I said, what, is there a problem? He goes, no, 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 no. They're talking about your people. How kind, how nice, how loving it is. One of the people that was there was Pete, who is my cousin, lives in Ohio. Pete said to me, I have never been hugged, I have been hugged more in the last day and a half then I have been hugged the last 50 years. The people who flew in for the conference are blown away at the kindness and, you know, and, and what I always say, the koinonia, the genuine fellowship in Christ. They were blown away by the fellowship of Christ. So the first point here in Philippians 1.27 is we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I want to make a, a point here. If you could write this down, it's a lot of words, but summarize it. To be known as a Christian, by the way, does not mean that we are not Muslim, we're not Jewish, we're not Hindu, and we're not Buddhist. Right? To be known as a Christian... The true defining mark of being a Christian is not defined by what you say, but is defined by how you live. The true defining mark of a Christian is not defined by what you say. You can call yourself a Christian till you're blue in the face, but the defining mark is going to be how you live. Conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. The second important point here in 
Verse 27 is the second part of that verse. Paul says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now Paul robbed my theme for the conference. <laughs> Paul says here that you are standing firm. You know, I think I mentioned this during the conference, to stand firm means to persist. It means to be immovable. It means to be resolute. What is Paul really saying? Be immovable in the faith. Don't be deterred. Don't be swayed. I think one of the biggest problems of many who profess the name of Christian and with many in the church is that what they profess and how they live are opposite of one another. They do not stand firm. They are not resolute. They are not immovable in their position in Christ. The world's agenda really drives their lives. And they're unwilling, they're unwilling to give up the world's agenda. And I think many in the church are succumbing to the world's agenda. They're succumbing. And Christ is being relegated to the least important. Listen, folks. You've heard me say this before and I'll say it again. Don't tell me you love something that you're unwilling to pursue. The proof of desire is in your pursuit. What is it that you pursue? Some people pursue career, 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 career. Why? Because they love that. Some people pursue a particular person. You know, a single single man will pursue a woman because he's in love with a woman, or a woman will pursue a man because they're in love with that man. But the proof of our desire as believers is in our pursuit. Do we pursue Jesus Christ? You know, Pursuing can be a tiring activity. You realize that, right? It could be a tiring activity. If a, if a police officer is pursuing a criminal, he may follow that criminal all throughout the city, all throughout the town. It may take hours, it may take days, it may take weeks until they're captured. When an army is pursuing another army, right? that could be a month, two months, three month campaign until that other army is taken. The pursuit of Christ is not a solitary event. The pursuit of Christ is a lifetime. And if you love Christ, you will pursue Christ. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that I may hear, I may hear, that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind. You know, that's what the church should be. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, in one accord. And we come together 
And as Paul says at the end of verse 27 here, we are striving together for the gospel. That's the ministry of the church. It's not to come and have a good time. It's not to hear good music or even to hear good preaching. It's none of that. We are striving for the gospel of Christ. And every time the gospel of Christ is advanced, we're happy. We rejoice. We praise God every time the gospel is advanced. The scripture tells us that the true believer has an unwavering love for Christ. That love is not intellectual. But it burns within the believer for more of Christ. And I want to just share with you for whatever it's worth. We started a new series in our Sunday school called Knowing God. <clears throat> and it's all about this. It's all about the pursuit of Christ. It's all about coming to know Christ, not here, not with the mind, but coming to know Christ with the heart. And if you haven't joined us, today we just did the introduction. I want to invite you next Sunday at 9.15. I believe that it is going to be a real challenge to our hearts and draw us deeper in Jesus Christ. But the Scripture echoes this. Here's some Scriptures for you. Colossians 1.10. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There he goes again with the worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 2 Peter 1.8. The Apostle Peter writes, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. As the Word of God tells us, we are to be consumed with the presence, with the power, and with the person of Jesus Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of Christ. Christ is the value. Our conduct is to match that value. Now I want to just share something, brothers and sisters. And something that's always on my heart. Let us not cheapen the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us not sell Christ short. If Christ is not alive in your life and there is no God consciousness in your life, if there's no hunger for Christ, if there's no thirst for Christ, then I'll tell you, that number one is a sign to repent. To turn, to turn from how you're living today and to turn to Christ. And ask Him for forgiveness of sin. Cry out to the Lord. Say, God, save me lest I die. Confess your sins because why? Because if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You must, as Jesus said, be born again. And that's something you can do right now. Right now, in your seat. Bow your head. Close your eyes. Talk to the Lord. But confess your sins and be saved. That's what the Gospel calls you to. You can't know anything of the experience of God. You cannot know anything of the experience of Christ if you stay in your sin and you refuse to repent. And I beg you by the authority of the Word of God, call out to Christ and be saved. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorites, says this about, about this, about the experience of God. He writes this, Because the whole Bible teaches experiences of God. We are meant to experience God. Did you hear that? We are meant to experience God. Intellectualism does not experience God. Intellectual belief records certain facts. Says, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Therefore, I must be a Christian. But the true believer is entering into a relationship with God. Therefore, we experience God. Notice what else he says. We are meant to know Him. Not simply believe and go on holding to our beliefs and taking it by faith. He goes on to say, seek God. Seek to know God. Seek to know His love. Seek to be filled with the knowledge and all of the fullness of God. This is a life pursuit for me. That's what I pursue. I want to know the fullness of God. I want more. I want more. It seems like there's a perpetual thirst. Lord, I need more of that water. Lord, I need more of that spiritual food. Lord, I need more of Christ. And I keep pursuing. And I keep pursuing. That is what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here in Philippians 1.27. That's what we have been talking about for such a long time. You heard Dr. Vaughn speak about that in the conference. To come and know God. To experience Christ. His love, His grace, His forgiveness. This is what we are all about. Now, I want to just make a few observations, some call to actions that I took coming out of the conference. I believe with all of my heart that God had spoken at that conference. I really do. And this week I had some time to pause and to contemplate and to consider where is God calling the church? So I'm going to give you five key call to actions for us. And I believe that these are specific for our church. Number one, we must fear the Lord God. Dr. Harold Vaughn spoke an outstanding message on Saturday afternoon regarding the fear of the Lord. I hope that never left you. I hope the words that he spoke never left you. His message spoke to me, but it should be heeded by all the church. That's the simple truth. The God we worship is to be feared and reverenced. 
He is not some casual buddy or chum. He is the holy, living, righteous God. The only God. Psalm 111, uh, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments, and His praise endures forever. I want you to know that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Before I can have all secrets of the Bible, before I can understand all mysteries of Scripture, it begins with the fear, the admonition, the reverence, the holiness, the awesomeness of the living God and of His Christ. Church, we must come together under the banner of the Lord and be a people who fear our God. Fear our God. And worship Him with all reverence. And if you don't understand the fear of the Lord, may I encourage you to go on our website and listen to Dr. Vaughn's message again. We have the video up. Listen to the message. And he'll explain what the fear of the Lord is. When I speak of worshiping the Lord, I'm not talking about solely when we come together as a church. But in our lives, do we have lives that worship the Lord? Listen, if all of us did that consistently, if we all feared the Lord, if our lives were filled with the knowledge and the understanding of the Lord and the presence of Christ, what manner of church would we be? It would be phenomenal. Phenomenal. The second call to action. We must love the Lord God with all of our heart. The love of God is paramount. And we will never be able to stand firm in the faith if we do not have an all-encompassing and consuming love for Jesus Christ. That means that everything else that we love has got to be pushed aside. That Christ would be preeminent. That Christ would be the characteristic that is reflected in our lives. That we're not doing justification for our sins. Oh, God doesn't care about this. This is okay. Oh, I have Christian liberty to do this. Listen, when you begin to justify certain sins, you're going down a slippery slope. May Christ be preeminent in us. May the love of Jesus Christ be the hallmark and the characteristic of this church and everybody in this church. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, you know this. We went over this in Sunday school this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And Jesus echoes something similar in John 14, 21, when he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. 
If we are to stand firm in the faith, we must love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. If our love for Christ is more potent than our love of the world, then we will not waver. We will indeed stand firm. Amen? Here's the third one. We must obey the Lord God. If we have a proper fear of God and a genuine love for God, then we can obey God. Obedience will not be something that we pick and choose what we want to do. On the contrary, we will be compelled by the love of Christ and the fear of the Lord to obey the Lord. We will abide by Christ. Why? Because that's what Christ requires and commands of us. And that as believers, we love to please Him. John 14, 23, Jesus said this, Jesus answered and said to me, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come together and make our abode with him. Don't you want to be in union with Christ? Amen. Don't you want the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to abide together the triune God? Amen. Do you know what that means for you? Amen. Here's the fourth call to action. We must serve the Lord God. You've heard me say this a million times. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Can I get an amen on that one? You cannot sit on the bench in the kingdom of God. Everybody's a starter. We must labor for the Lord until He comes. And it doesn't matter whether you are 18 or 80. Let me tell you something. One of the greatest things I loved about the conference was seeing our young people like Giselle, like Eli, like Brandon, and they were serving alongside Charlotte, and they were serving alongside Shirley, and they were serving alongside all the others. There was no differentiator. We didn't say young people over here, old people over here, people in the middle over here. There's no, you hear me say this all the time, there's no social security in the kingdom of God. There's no retirement papers you file with the Lord, say, hey, I'm going to chill now until you call me home. No. We must serve the Lord our God with our spiritual gifts. And by the way, I know I may have made this point before and I'll say it again, but our spiritual gifts are to be employed in the church. You can't tell me you have spiritual gifts and you're sitting at home not doing anything. The spiritual gifts are for the furtherance of the gospel through the church. So if you're sitting on the bench at home, your spiritual gifts are going wasted. Contrary to what you might think. Lastly, the fifth call to action. We must know the Lord. Every person in the church has to get to that place where they know the Lord, where the head knowledge is now transferred from the head to the heart, and we live in the light of that knowledge. We are believers. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. And that becomes the moniker of our life. That becomes the name tag of our life. That we are believers. And you cannot love someone you don't know. That's an impossibility. 
So it's critical that we come to know Christ. It's critical that we come and we serve and we worship and adore Him. Listen, this is my life verse and I'm sharing it with you. It's Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. I love this verse. This is literally, I mean, it's written in the front of my Bible. This is my life verse. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. He understands and he knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. And it's been a pursuit of mine ever since, that I may know Him. That I may know Him. Paul talks about this a little further in Philippians 3.10. He says, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. In both cases, that word know, K-N-O-W, means experiential knowledge. That's what it means. It doesn't mean intellectual knowledge. It means experiential knowledge. Something gained from an experience. Let me tell you, you have an encounter with Jesus Christ. If you've been to faith in Jesus Christ, if you repented of your sin, if you have felt the forgiving power of Jesus Christ in your life, then you've experienced Him. But do not stop. There's so much more in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It will generate inside of you a passion that you never knew. One that will take you all the way to glory. So in closing, my final admonition is we must, as a church, come to a place where we decide to stand firm and give everything to Christ and give everything to the church. And the call goes out. The call goes out to all of us. And I'm not ashamed to say this. The call goes out to all of us to commit ourselves to this church. To commit ourselves to this church. To take our time, our service, our sacrifice, our resources and invest it in advancing the kingdom of God through Calvary. And let me tell you why. Because our church has many needs. But I believe the greatest need is consistency and commitment. We need a consistent commitment to dedication, to attendance, to service, to giving to the church. It's time. It is time. For this church to move forward now. It is time for this church to move forward now. And it's going to take sacrifice. And there is no service without sacrifice. That's just the way it is. There's no service without inconvenience. It's time that as a church we reach other people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is going to take discipleship and commitment. This is what we do. Sunday morning, 9.15... Tuesday at 9 o'clock, men's, men's uh, gathering at 7.30 a.m. What are we doing? We're discipling one another. We're building one another. Women's fellowship. We're building one another up in the faith of God. You will not grow if you do not commit. We need to reach others for the kingdom of God. It's time 
we find a home for this church. It's time. If we learn anything from the Stand Firm Conference, you know what we learned? We learned that our best thoughts, if given to the Lord, He will do it. We need that. Are you praying for that? Are you searching for that? Are you looking for that? Our God is the God of the impossible. No matter how many people say, that's not a possibility. Oh, we don't have a million dollars in the bank. You don't have this. Forget about that. If God says, here's the church, here it is. End the story. Listen, it's time to develop something for our children and our young adults. It's time. It's time. And to reach more younger people. It's time for others to fill our empty seats. It's time to increase our Tuesday night Bible study, our Wednesday night prayer meeting, and every other means that we have of spreading the gospel and the good news of Christ. It is time to believe God for the impossible. So what will your answer be to this call that goes before you today? What will your response be? Only you can answer that before the Lord God Almighty. Will you decide to trust God and join us to propel our church further in Christ? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father,